Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Here we are, Matt, in our virtual recording studio. How are you doing this lovely day? Oh, I'm doing the best I can. How about yourself? Doing well, doing well. Actually, uh, you know, it's funny. We talk about the silver lining a lot of times during this quarantine. And uh, the silver lining for me recently, or for us as a family, we realized the athleticism as our son, uh, for our son as he, for the first time, somehow got out of his crib during nap time and we heard a thud. Followed oh, by gosh. screams, followed by the, his bedroom door opening and him running out of there. Uh, oh, so, gosh. yeah, I immediately grabbed the the uh, Alan Key and lowered his bed so that he couldn't do that anymore. But uh, the little the little bugger got out, and yeah, he managed to flop himself onto the ground. So that that was an interesting episode. And uh, anyway, silver lining there is he's an athletic yeah. little guy, supposedly. Could be a sign of a college scholarship in the future or something. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. A college scholarship to do more virtual schooling, if it goes yeah, the way no that, <laughs> which is crazy. I, I couldn't imagine. I don't know about you, but online stuff for me. Uh, I mean, I guess I could do it if I had to, but uh, and, I, and I'm actually going to be doing it. So, but it scares me because I tried to do a calculus course online and it was a complete disaster. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, some things are meant for online or visual or audio or or just being there to ask questions and see things work their way through. Yeah. Others are not, and I don't know if I could tell you which one is which. Um, <laughs> you know, drilling fluids, hopefully uh, this podcast you can learn audibly. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, that's why we do tech tips and things like that is to add a little visual style to, to some things. And um, if you haven't noticed, listeners... We are running through different, a lot of different things, but one thing we're trying to do is go through all the different steps in a mud check. And I mean, not just really, not really to tell you how to run uh, MBT, for example, but to tell you why you run it, how the test actually works, um, any of those kind of little nuances. Um, so hopefully that is supplemental to this auditory learning experience that you get when you listen to the flow line. Most definitely. And, and that's something uh, I think is important. And actually, t- talking about tech tips, Matt, why don't you describe the recent one? Because we just released one, didn't we? We've released, yes, we did just release one on uh, chloride titration, both, both for oil and water-based mud. So Very cool. Andrew, one of our tech support specialists, put that together. Um, and just explaining you know, how you're calling your endpoint. What is you know, whole mud chlorides versus salinity? You know, but but w- with respect to what's actually going on in that test, what's What's that uh, silver nitrate doing when it changes colors? Um, so hopefully you find it interesting and useful. And, uh, you know, we, we hope that we build up enough of that stuff that over time, you know, if you just start thinking about what is really going on here, um, you could just run to our YouTube channel and look it up and get a quick explanation for yourself or for someone you're working with. Yeah, very cool. And for all the field folks out there, all the mud engineers, uh, if you could subscribe to the YouTube channel, I think you're going to find a lot of useful information continuing to be created. So a big shout out to Matt and his group down in the lab and, uh, you know, especially working hard during this quarantine. It's tough, but uh, certainly making it happen. So, uh, yeah, you know, big shout out to you guys. Um, and speaking of testing, Matt, uh, that kind of leads us to our next topic here in the flow line is uh, talking about filtration. Um, you know, I think for a lot of folks out there, they understand the general principle behind it. And 
And, you know, for most mud engineers, including myself, it was one of those tests where you, you go through it and you measure it. And from that measurement, you kind of make your treatments and, and it kind of tells you a little bit of what's going on. But ultimately, you don't you don't have a piece of rock uh, for every foot that you're drilling to apply fluid to and see what the invasion looks like and, you know, measuring it out the other side. So, um, you know, the APIs come up with some standard tests that we can use. And so I think that's what we're talking about today. Matt, what do you think? I think it's good. It's it's one of those that maybe sounds a little lab intensive, although a lot of these tests can end up in the field if you're on a pretty extreme well or something that's a little more challenging. And so I, I thought it'd be a good idea. We could just run through a lot of these different tests and some of them maybe that you haven't heard of uh, just to know that they're there. And um, perhaps you'll pick up a slight amount of healthy skepticism about their usefulness and validity from me um, as we go through them. Perfect. Perfect. Well, let's, uh, kick this one off here. So with respect to filtration, uh, I think the first, uh, sort of category, the first topic I'd like to discuss is the media. And that's basically the material that is used when the fluid, uh, reaches it. And then we basically measure a leak off underneath. And that's just the kind of generally how I would, uh, describe it. But would you mind describing that part of, of the, the application and, and the test in itself is that the media part of it? Sure. So, you know, we know that to make a filter cake, I have to have some overbalanced pressure, right? And so I'm, I'm basically squeezing the liquid out of the mud. It's leaking through that, as, as I would use the word media. Um, and whatever that material is, you know, we're, we're most familiar with paper, right? Uh, the Wattman paper, it's got a specific thickness. That's probably the most common thing you're ever going to encounter. I think it's about 2.7 millidarcies in permeability or something in that neighborhood. Um, and that's just sort of the benchmark standard. And, you know, that stuff's good to about 375 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere up there. Um, and in essence, uh, we'll use that as our benchmark. But the fact is that we also know that our formation isn't made out of filter paper and most of it doesn't have that permeability. So, um, there can be other things we'd use. And even with, let's say we're testing at 500 degrees Fahrenheit, that's really, really hot. Um, and paper may not hold up very well. So there's something called Dynaloy X5, which is basically just a metal material that can hold up and it ha- offers the same type of filtration um, as paper. But then we could get even more complicated, sophisticated, if you will. Um, when we talked about wellbore strengthening, Justin, you may recall, we talked about slot testing. Ah, yes. So yeah, it, it could be as simple as these metal slots. You get, you take them to a machine shop. They're basically a disc, but they have a size slot. Let's say, you know, one that's 500 microns, one that's a thousand microns. And you test your wellbore strengthening material up against that and see how well it seals that slot. And that's supposed to simulate a fracture. Um, hmm. as we get in more specific or extreme conditions. Uh, so for example, when you're drilling a reservoir, a sandstone reservoir, and you want to check fluid loss, paper is interesting, but if you already know the permeability of that sandstone, you might want to get a material that has a very similar permeability. So you can make sure your bridging's good and that your fluid loss is tight on, on a similar permeability material. So, uh, there's a couple of different things you can use. One is sintered metal, which is basically bits of metal that are stuck together. Um, and probably the most common that people hear is ceramic. Um, so ceramic filter discs are sometimes referred to as aloxite media. Um, but ceramic, they're, they're usually, you know, white in color. There's different sizes. These are actually from, uh, water filtration. 
So they're rated to a certain permeability, but um, if you actually look at them under a microscope, they're kind of all over the place. But API has some specs uh, as to what they say the general size is by micron sizing. Um, I'll just say that I think those numbers are probably okay. I think they got frustrated by all the variations, but they're not entirely reliable. Some of the disks are basically the same size if you look at them pretty closely. Um, another thing is you can actually get something like sandstone. So it's not uncommon. There's a few places where you can order uh, just regular sandstone, Berea sandstone, what's called outcrop material, but it's basically quarried material. They can cut it into whatever shape you want, so you can get it in the same shape as a or size as a disc. Um, of course, the problem is you need to know what the quality is of it because if it has shale in it or it has impurities, that's a problem. Um, and knowing exactly what you're getting can be tricky. I got gotcha. you. So, so is something to me that seems very important is whatever material you're using, the more uniform, the better. Which is why you know with the paper. It's a consistent, it's a manufactured product versus getting... Right. Yeah, I mean, you, you want to make sure your benchmark, if, if you go by these numbers, you want to make sure they stay the same and that if they increase, something happened, and if they decrease, something happened, and it's not that something in your test changed, right? So um, that's, a, that's a really good point, um, you know? And, and I think that's the trick, actually. You know, the, the last two pieces of media I'd cover is, is one is Fraxand, which Fraxand has okay quality control, although, you know, ceramic frac sand versus mined sand there's going to be variations um even how you pack it in the cell can change the results uh and similarly with resin coated sand which is basically sand that is coated with a resin and, and you can basically bake it into a disc or some kind of hard material um and resin coated sand part of the idea is that you could kind of mix up the porosity and permeability with that stuff but it goes back to how many tests are you going to run um, so there's a lot of, there, you know, you name it, someone's probably tried to see if fluid would flow through it and at what rate, but that is the long list of different things. Just so you're aware, although I would say, you know, the most common is obviously going to be paper. Uh, the second most common is probably going to be ceramic discs. Well, Matt, that leads me t to my next question. Obviously we drill with different types of fluids and, and but to keep it simple, you know, have your oil-based systems and your water-based mud systems uh how does that is, is there a difference with how we measure filtration within two different drilling fluid systems well we'll run through the the tests i think there's uh you know, you know probably the most obvious one is that the api fluid loss which was kind of the original standard for water-based mud check is probably going to be zero in oil-based mud uh, that's the reason it, the API guidelines don't say that you can't run it. They just say it would probably be zero and it's not part of a standard mud check. Um, and then I guess the flip side is the more extreme. And, and when we describe the tests, you'll hear, you know, some of these things are so extreme that it gets less and less likely that you actually have a water-based mud to test, you know, not, not to say they don't exist. Uh, and certainly the technology continues to develop. Um, but it, it gets more and more likely under extreme conditions that it's going to be an oil-based mud test. Uh, so. That's just something, I guess, to keep in mind. But, um, you know, that, that's kind of how I break it down. Gotcha. So what about, uh, well, okay. So with regards to safety, uh, there's obviously things, some of these tests are applied under pressure 
some aren't. Can you describe which ones are, which ones aren't, and how we approach it from a safety perspective? Well, they're all actually, well, they're going to, they're going to have some form of pressure. I guess it's, it's more a question of whether you're exposed to it, but let's just assume you are. Um, I think, I think the main thing is trying to follow procedures, uh, just because I don't know. So I, one of my hobbies is woodworking and you look at the statistics of safety with some of this equipment and it's, it's not somebody who's brand new at woodworking. It's people who've been doing it for a long time that sort of have it all down in their heads that cut corners or aren't paying attention and kind of, you know, go off of instinct. Those are the ones that get hurt. And so I think it's important to review and follow just the procedures because even when I reviewed the API guidelines for this conversation, mm-hmm. um, there were a few like, Oh, I forgot about that. Um, now granted I'm not working in a lab every day running those tests, but I have certainly caught with, uh, you know, lab folks, um, certain things that, um, you know, I didn't know if you're going to run a fluid loss test above 350 degrees Fahrenheit that you have to use a 500 milliliter cell. Um, I just didn't know that it makes sense. However, uh, I think it was just, um, it, it's just one of those read the procedures. You may catch something you didn't know. Um, and then of course it's a cell it's pressured up. Uh, you know, trapped pressure is a thing, you know, we've got these solid particles. You could plug a, a part of the equipment and it could hold pressure for a while and all of a sudden release. So you've got to kind of assume that it's loaded until it's totally opened up. Um, you know, even leaving headspace in the cell, you know, someone who's brand new might try and fill the cell all the way up to the top and then close it. Um, and that's a great way to send the top of the cell into the ceiling of a lab. (laughs) And a lot of older labs are, I mean, if you go into a trailer, you've probably seen some of the scars from one of those shooting up and and hitting it. It hurts somebody either on the way up or on the way down. No, that's, that's a very good point. And, you know, although a lot of these seem rinky dinky, but, uh, you know, we'll talk about it next, you know, obviously with regards to when testing oil based muds, you got a high pressure, high temperature, uh, filtration test that you do. And, and, and yeah, there's, uh, and you can talk more about the details of the actual pressure, but it's enough to seriously hurt somebody. And so you, you gotta, gotta be mindful. You gotta, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's and really pay attention when you're doing any of these tests for that matter. Cause you're dealing with chemicals and you're dealing with pressure and temperature. So, you know, all things to consider. And like you said, you could do it a thousand times and the one minute you're, you know, watching something or listening to something and all of a sudden you take your mind off it. There's uh certainly, you know, there's, there's very little margin for error when doing tests like this. So, um, but th- that leads me into the next part, Matt, there's different devices used to test filtration. Matt, can you speak about the different, the actual devices used, uh, you know, the ones that we might see in the lab on the rig versus the ones that we have, uh, perhaps in the lab here in Houston and, and throughout the rest of the, the company at the different locations? Sure. So, I mean, I'll start with the most basic, the API filter test, the one in your water-based mud kit. Um, we know that one pretty well. So 100 PSI overbalance, typically, you don't heat the cell. Um, some of the newer ones are actually even clear cells with a metal bottom, so you can kind of see the fluid in there for however exciting that can be. Um, and then when you get up to you're actually heating and applying lots of pressure, what we typically call the high-pressure, high-temperature fluid loss, or HPHT. Um, and there's a few different versions of this, but um, typically the filter paper area is half the size of the API, which the only reason I bring that up now is we'll, we'll talk about handling results at the end. 
Uh, it's one of the things that drives me nuts in as much as you double your HPHT value to report your result. And the argument is, well, it's if you benchmark to the surface area on an API filter press, that's why you double it. Mm, okay. Um, okay. Uh, you know, they're taking it down a step further. There's, um, there's another version of the HPHT, which we call the modified HPHT. So a lot of these, these cells will have an opening on either end. So we'll have like a bottom cap and a top cap. But uh, this is typically one that would accommodate like your ceramic disc media. Um, so when I used to do reservoir drilling fluids, we had all of our cells in the lab were like that. Um, and then it can get a little bit more uh, complicated. Uh, so when you're interested in really high overbalanced pressures, you're typically using a ceramic disc. Um, you can use what's called a permeability plugging apparatus, PPA or PPT, which is a permeability plugging test. Um, and this uses a hydraulic pump to pressure up. And depending on the cell configuration, um, I don't know who got in competition with who, but I think at one point they were rated you'd have one that was 2,000 PSI. And I think the highest I've ever seen is like 6,000 PSI of overbalance. So you're using hydraulic pressure to basically use a, to move a piston and press fluid up against the disc. Um, so it, it's the other interesting thing is it's um, the cell is the disc is usually on top. So you take filtrate from the top of the cell, which means gravity um, particles and stuff aren't settling on the disc. You're actually pushing them up against the disc. Mm. Um, and then kind of one of the more interesting ones that it's quite expensive. You don't see them everywhere is is the dynamic HPHT. And this one has a, uh, a stir in it. Basically, with the understanding that uh, uh, most of these tests are static, and um, we know that gravity has a pretty big bearing on what's happening, and we also know that our filter cakes don't form by just pressing fluid up against the formation and stopping. Um, and so, uh, the idea here is actually to have this stir, and you can adjust it at different uh, at different shear rates, so it actually kind of controls the deposition of the filter cake, where it can't get any thicker because it keeps getting eroded. Um, and you'll get different fluid loss values doing that. Um, you know, and then, oh, before I forget another fairly basic one, more along the API standards, uh, a lot of folks use the sand bed test out in the field. Um, and this is a pressurized cell. And instead of paper as our media, we will use frac sand and it's got a sight glass on the side and you can see how the fluid invades into that sand. So, um, you know, for example, our product, uh, micro strength, when you add that, you can kind of benchmark how much you're carrying in, in, as to how much distance it invades. The trick is, you know, where you're looking at the cell, how the sand is packed. There, there's a, a fair amount of variation where I think I like it more as a field benchmark than an overly technical apparatus. Mm. Um, and then the last two uh, are, bear in mind, a lot of this stuff is lab stuff, right? And, and so what happens with lab people is they come up with something new and fancy and they're like, aha, everybody needs to use this. <laughs> um, and everybody's like, okay, where can I get one? And they're like, well, you can't because I made it in my garage. <laughs> and so then you're stuck with, okay, so you want the whole industry to standardize to this and yet no one has it. And if I have to pay you to make it and it creates very, uh, I don't know, it creates all sorts of, controversy and challenges and, and normally these things don't end up getting ad adopted but there's even things that, that test radial filtration and by that i mean think of a cylinder 
and you drill out the inside of it like a borehole and you circulate fluid down that and you measure the fluid loss coming out of that cylinder. So the cylinder is your permeable media, the, the hollow cylinder. Um, and so that's, that's one thing that I will acknowledge exists in some labs. Um, and then finally, probably the most uh, elaborate, we've talked about return permeability testing, um, is a permeameter where you basically have a core sample and you circulate fluid across the core face. You have a precision pump, but you can apply different amounts of overbalance pressure and rock stress and, and things like that. Um, those tend to be pretty expensive, so we don't, we don't see a lot of those. Okay. But, um, you know, to, to answer your question, Justin, uh, you know, in the field, obviously the, the API and the HPHT are pretty much always out there. Um, the modified HPHT could easily be run out there. The PPT, it's not uncommon to have out in the field. The sand bed test, it's not uncommon. The rest of these are probably more suited to the lab. Uh, the equipment's more complicated. It's more difficult to maintain. Um, so that's that's most of the devices that I can think of. We'll put it that yeah, way. Yeah, that makes sense. So the ones that we would have in the lab uh, are typically used strictly for like research and development or um, not, not necessarily operational, right? It's more analytical type stuff. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just to characterize uh, certain certain differences or to a very specific application where, um, so I've used a dynamic filtration, uh, apparatus. It was really because the filter cake was kind of thick in the, uh, in the permeameter. And a lot of people are saying, well, we're not quite sure. Is that, could that really be? Um, and so we tried to do these dynamic depositions where we had more realistic circulating rates and, uh, and tried to see, okay, is it thinner or thicker than, these other configurations and it was thinner and, there, and there's some papers out there on that. Okay. Uh, but that, a good point, like the reason a lot of this stuff hasn't made its way out of the field is you really don't need it. It's, it's on the development side of things to get you to the field. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you, you mentioned configurations, like how, how much does a configuration actually matter when running these types of tests? I mean, it, it can be a big deal. I think, um, you know, uh, for one, what temperature are you trying to get to? So, if you're using a long cell, uh, for example, in a PPT, the cell is pretty well enclosed with a heater jacket, so it gives better, more consistent temperatures. Um, the sm smaller, shorter cells, you know, especially the ones we have in the field, there's still a good amount of circulation above and below where getting consistent temperature is, is maybe a bit trickier. Um, you know, I think for different pressures, as I mentioned, it could be the same test, and it could say, no, you need to if it's if it's at this high temperature, you need a bigger cell. Um, one of the interesting things I came across was even pressure ratings. Um, so the PPT, some are put together with set screws. Some of them have a cap that's basically threaded and you screw it on. And the cap that's threaded is the one that does really high pressures. Um, interestingly enough, back in the mid nineties, one of those set screw ones had stamped on it 2,500 PSI and that's what it was rated to. And I can only imagine why, but Later on, the pressure rating was reduced to 1,800 PSI. Oh, wow. And you could say, hey, you know, that was, Matt, that was 25 years ago. But this is expensive equipment, you know, made out of special metallurgy. Um, and if you keep it clean and take care of it, you don't replace it. So there's a good chance there's some of those floating around, you know. Jeez, that's um, some serious pressure. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, so there are tests that specify to 2000 PSI, you know, we talked about differential sticking and you might use a PPT to benchmark that, make sure your fluid loss is really low at a really high overbalance pressure. Um, you know, I, I think even we know when we heat up, we're, we, uh, we're, we're to high temperatures, we have that bottom regulator where we apply pressure on the underside at hundred PSI and to keep the filtrate from boiling and evaporating. Uh, if you get up to really high pressures, you may need as much as 750 PSI back pressure. Wow. Um, which I mean, I didn't know that. Uh, and I, it's one of those like, okay, if you're doing some extreme conditions, you need to look at the configuration. You need to see if, is your equipment capable and even rated to some of this stuff. Right. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, beyond that on, on the configuration part, um, you know, it's how is this stuff lined up? Uh, you know, how is it, um, you know, how is your cell positioned? Uh, so I think I've mentioned gravity is a big deal. I've, I've seen folks ask for, Hey, I want a 16 hour filter cake and it's why it's not going to be representative at all. It'll be, you know, doing fluid loss for 16 hours. You're going to have a cake that's far thicker. Well, you know, we hot roll it for 16 hours and that's supposed to symbolize something. (laughs) Right. But you know, you're right. You're pretending like this is a static condition that's actually going to happen in the field. And it's not, it just makes a really thick cake. Um, you know, I, I've just, so I, I think there's sort of this distance between what we do with this test and reality where, you know, all this stuff is based on trending, um, and trying to say, Oh, well, this translates to the field. Exactly. Um, that's a bit tricky when you talk about configurations. I got you. So I don't know if we talked about it. We, you, you probably touched on it, but but how is this stuff actually measured? Like when when we do these tests, uh, I'm sure most people already know. You know, the fluid, the filtrate drops into graduated cylinder. We measure it, but but can you kind of speak a little bit more on, on what we're seeing and, and whether or not that's actually representative of what's going on, or is it more you know monitoring trends? Can you touch on that? So I mean, definitely, you know trending i think the the uh, the main part is we you know typically what we predominantly look for are two things we measure the thickness of the filter cake we put that on our motherboard and then we uh we take the 30 minute value or the fluid loss over 30 minutes um however there are other data points that we use to kind of report it um so i mentioned doubling it for the hpht um and that's on paper, a ceramic disc has a different surface area. And so that would actually be a different number, which I don't have, and I've never bothered to do. Um, but one of the things you'll do is, is, uh, I like also to know the spurt loss. So as soon as you open up the valve stem, there'll be a a squirt of fluid that comes out and then things will kind of slow down a little bit and you'll just get, you know, slow drips. Um, and that spurt loss can be an indicator of if I need to alter my bridging material, Sometimes just a little bit of fine material can actually lower that spurt loss and, and limit invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the common ways to plot trends is versus square root time. So you would take, um, you would take, uh, you know, the reading at one minute, two minutes, four minutes, nine minutes, sixteen minutes, um, and you would want to plot that. And you'd look for something that's that's pretty much linear once you got your spurt loss out. Um, and so uh, the idea would be that if it if it isn't flattening out, uh, that in all likelihood, maybe your filter cake is breaking down or it's not as stable as you thought, or, um, 
you know, it's just suboptimal and you need to go back to the drawing. Um, so that's, you know, one, one thing. And then, um, on the PPT, uh, I will just say, and some people can disagree. Uh, I believe the PPT has one of the dumbest calculations for any reason whatsoever. Like, I don't, I don't understand. And maybe someone could explain to me why you just don't record the raw numbers and report them. But, um, they basically say, well, okay, first thing you're going to do is, um, your volume of your PPT is going to be double what you the volume of your 30 minute, your actual 30 minute. And then to calculate the spurt loss, instead of just recording what material squirts out when you crack open the valve, um, you're going to do some amalgamation of your seven and a half minute fluid loss along with your other reading. Um, and that's going to give you some number uh, in milliliters. And then to report the static filtration rate, I mean, it's, it's trying to collect a, you know, report it as velocity. You'll do some other math. Um, and it just drives me nuts. Um, because honestly, all you're doing is doing some mathematical operation on some numbers that aren't that precise. You know, you're talking about tenths of milliliters at best. Uh, and so the PPT upsets me tremendously with respect to how you're supposed to report it. And maybe it's my own ignorance that I don't understand these things. But to me, it's the same reason I don't understand why you double the HPHT. If, if your best error is plus or minus a tenth of a mil, why would you just double that so your error is increased? Right. I mean, just take the reading you have and benchmark it. But um, you know what? I'm not in charge, Justin. <laughs> well, maybe one day you will and you can just simplify everything for us because uh, you know sometimes when we overcomplicate things to make people feel smarter than they are, then people get lost in the weeds and then we have to create podcasts to explain it all. So maybe that's, there's a good reason for it after all. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, it gives us something to do, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, Matt, you know, I, we've touched on quite a bit of it. I think we're pushing a half an hour. So if we still have anyone listening who's super interested and has any further questions, I would encourage you to ask Matt. Um, as you can see, I didn't add much value to this one other than just asking questions because, uh, you know, my experience with a lot of this is in the field, running it uh, in the mud lab. And so, uh, Matt, I appreciate you diving into the weeds and doing some research to help clarify some of the the nitty gritty things with regards to filtration, Matt, you got any closing last words before we, uh, get back to our home offices here? Uh, I don't really, I mean, I, I wanted to go on to this. I, I hope not, a, nobody fell asleep driving or anything, but, um, I thought it would be a worthwhile conversation to those that are interested just because there's all kinds of equipment out there and media. And I feel like this easily falls into the category of, I know something you don't know. Let me talk about a test and you kind of scratch your head. Um, when in reality we're taking fluid loss or different things in different ways. And, um, that shouldn't be that complicated. So that's my piece. Perfect. And with that being said, please hit us up at the Flowline podcast at aesfluids.com. If you have any questions or hit us up on LinkedIn, we're always willing to engage and talk to all the fantastic fans we out there. Thank you very much. Take care for now. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.